to the first Sunday in Lent. Here's what I want to do this morning. I want to say some things that I said on Ash Wednesday about the themes of Lent, some things about uh, understanding Lent's origins and its purposes, and then to speak about the centerpiece of the first Sunday in Lent, which is the temptation of Christ, and how if we understand Jesus to be the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, the template that we lay over our own spiritual life and maturity, uh, his temptation may have something to do with uh, our own spiritual struggles, and we'll see about that. I'm also going to say a brief word about the reading from Deuteronomy and from Romans, just to make some comments about... uh, the biblical witness and why it's important to uh, be concerned, as I said, about what the Bible said, what the Bible means, and not what the Bible says. Remember that Episcopalians operate, or most Episcopalians, on the principle that the Bible is true, and some of it happened. So we we have we have a a, a view, don't we, about that. We have just finished, oddly enough, the second cycle. The Christian year begins uh, the liturgical year with cycle two of the Christian year in terms of its historical development and origin. So we just finished with Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, and now we're at the most ancient of the the posts in the liturgical year, Lent, Easter, Pentecost. Uh, The Lenten season is now 40 days long. It was originally just uh, a a period, maybe a week-long fast, which we would now call Holy Week uh, early on, and then it became extended. And I I guess some of you may put two and two together and say, gee, it's 40 days long, and in the first Sunday in Lent, we read the gospel about Jesus going into the wilderness for 40 days. So here we are seeing some kind of a connection Uh, between those things. The principal purpose of the season of Lent in its origins was to do the final preparation for people who were to be baptized on Easter, which in the first 300 years or so of Christian history was the only time that people were baptized. In some places it appears Or in most places, if you wanted to become a Christian, it took three years. You had to enter the catechumenate, and you had to prepare for your baptism, and uh, then you were baptized. Uh, When Constantine showed up and declared Christianity not only tolerated, but the only legal religion in the Roman Empire, uh, everybody got baptized, right? So that meant we were as becoming now a matter of course that the, 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 the age for most people being baptized was infancy, and we had always uh, believed that we had biblical support to do that and had done that before Constantine, but now it uh, seemed to be the default position. And as we move towards the Middle Ages, the more and more we get a kind of idea that baptism is cosmic spot remover rather than, you know, the community's welcome of the baptized into the body of Christ uh, as its principal focus, uh, we then think about the season of Lent 
not merely as a recovery or, or re-intensification re of our baptismal promises, but uh, a uh, perhaps overweening concern with our personal sinfulness and an overly penitential uh, demeanor with regard to what we think the keeping of the season should be. So oddly enough, even before the Reformation in the, the church, the Christian church, which uh, promulgates the view that the church is extremely important, uh, it became highly privatized and individualized, didn't it? And even when I was a kid, I remember people, and even now focused on, you know, no seas candy for Lent, you know, whatever we're going to do, or we're taking something on, and we're sort of uh, working on this stuff in a kind of navel-gazing fashion. So one of the, the positive aspects, I think, of the, of the renewal in the church's life over the last 45 or 50 years has been the recovery of a balanced view of, of Lent as a time to reflect on how you reconvert yourself. And so reflection is not merely a reflection about what it is that you're doing wrong, but it may be the intensification and the strengthening of those things that you're doing right and the skills and abilities that you have uh, that will assist you in the process of a deeper Christian maturity. So Lent, uh, I think, can, needs to be seen in that balanced fashion. Three themes you get on Ash Wednesday that will be with us uh, through the, whole, the great 40 days. And even into the great 50 days of Easter, we're going to read some of these uh, readings that we, we hear from the Old Testament uh, or from the Christian scriptures uh, that come up because they'll be reminding us of a theme that's part of Easter. And that is that you and I live in a period we call salvation history. And more to the point, this is understood both in corporate terms as the community of faith seeing that God's abiding presence has been with them throughout their history, but that each person has a role to play in God's plan for the cosmos. And so it is reasonable to say without being too puffed up that each of you and your personal history is part of the history of salvation. You have a role to play. What do we mean when we say that salvation understood, as I say over and over again, as the process of bringing to wholeness and completion God's plan for the cosmos. The same word to, for to save, both in Hebrew and Greek, also means to heal. So we're interested in the whole idea of how we bring God's healing grace to the world. The three themes are repentance, reconciliation, and godly motives working on, our, uh, on the motives, the internal motives. I'm not so sure any of us completely know ourselves. We may have gotten to the view that we, we do at least acknowledge that uh, the, 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 the um, capacity for the human person to deceive themselves is infinite. And so we understand that we need in some way to be able to uh, work on that and to begin to see that uh, that's the process of cooperating with the Spirit of God. Each of us have God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. Father Thomas Keating, who I talk about all the time, he's written some wonderful books. If you're interested in 
uh, contemplative prayer or his particular understanding of humanity, I think, is, is very good. Some may accuse him of being a little bit too immersed in uh, developmental psychology. But, you know, you need to understand some of that stuff to understand uh, the spiritual life. I don't use the word psychological much. I don't like it. I, I prefer emotional. And I think our emotional condition, not our psychological condition, is what, uh, is what it is. You know, a lot of times people think, when I was in the, in the 60s, we were always talking about, well, I feel this way. Well, no, you don't. You think that way. <laughs> right? That's what you think. Feeling is about five things, you know, happy, mad, glad, sad, frightened. Those are feelings. But when we say, uh, I feel like I, you know, you think that. So how those two things get in sync uh, is part of, of the spiritual maturity, and that's what Keating in some ways talks about. He says that Lent is the time to change the direction in which you're looking for happiness. And he also uh, says that the, the work, the spiritual work that every human person does focuses itself around three energy centers. You've heard this before. Affection and esteem, security and survival, and power and control. Those are the things that we have developed responses to in our pre-rational state as developing humans. Now this is going to be important because you know there was a big debate in early Christianity about whether or not since we move towards an understanding and a thinking of Jesus' divinity and Jesus' humanity, there were some people who wanted to ask the question, did Jesus go through a moral development? Did Jesus go through a development of his consciousness? Did Jesus have to be socialized? You know, did Jesus have to learn, get up and brush your teeth? Some people said, oh no, well, you know, he was God. <laughs> And uh, everybody who wrestled with this, I can imagine you're saying, boy, this is a big yawner. But remember, there was, no, <laughs> there was no internet and there was no TV then, you know, or radio or anything like that. So people had uh, a lot of time. If you can believe this, they actually came to church because the sermon was Sunday entertainment. <laughs> Good night, nurse, right? So one time at Neshota House, I went into the rare book room. Some of you know what a rare book room is in the library. Usually it's the place where the naughty books are kept. <laughs> but hardly at Neshota House, the seminary of the Episcopal Church. But they had a whole collection of uh, autographed copies of sermons by famous Anglican preachers. And one of them was a sermon by one of the founders of the Oxford movement named John Keeble. And John Keeble was a country parson. Uh, he had, uh, was part of the Catholic revival in the Church of England in the 1830s with John Henry Newman and, and uh, Edward Pusey. And he, this was a sermon he preached at uh, Christ Church Cathedral in Oxford. It was on robin's egg blue paper that was about this big. It had a blue ribbon tied around it. And it was written in his own hand, perfect handwriting. And it was like 
you know, 45 pages long. <laughs> so I sat at the table and I was, you know, reading the sermon. And I, go, and I started reading the sermon and I got about 10 pages in and there was a, a page and a half of Hebrew written in his own hand out on the, that he probably read in Hebrew to the, to the college when he preached it. Then he slips back into English and we go for another four or five pages and then it's three pages of Greek, perfectly written in his own hand and then back into English, and every once in a while, a Latin paragraph will come up, and it would have been, it was written in, it was absolutely, you know. And uh, here it was, and if you read it, or heard him preach it, it probably was like an hour and a half. You know, so you, you're getting off light here. This is, <laughs> don't ever think. So Father Keating says that the place the place that we want to look for this are these three energy centers. And I'll talk more about that in a minute with the gospel. But let me say a word about Deuteronomy. This reading we read today, also we read on Thanksgiving Day in church at the liturgy. And it's read on Thanksgiving Day as uh, the thanksgiving to God and the offering of the first fruits. This is what it's about. And we read it on the first Sunday in Lent in this cycle because this is about the rehearsal of the history of salvation for the people of Israel and a reminder that somehow we see in our own history, corporately and personally, God's work. And as we see it and put two and two together, we come now to a confession of faith and belief in God's abiding fidelity and presence. For the people of Israel, the defining moment for them was the exodus. And for Christian people, the defining moment is the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so this reading is about the precursor to what the Christians now see definitively completed in Christ as people of faith. And we read now that they, we stand in some way in continuity with that. And so Deuteronomy is speaking about that, that somehow we move to confession of faith from reflection on our own history, personally and corporately. And in Romans, Paul is doing the same thing. And why I wanted to mention this is that this is one of the passages in the New Testament where we see the uh, origins of the development of the creeds. Here, here's something, this is a little off the subject, here's what you should know. By, by the first three centuries of Christianity, three things emerged that solidified the way the church understood itself practically everywhere, even though they had plural ways of being church. They had an overriding form, and here it is, in this order, Episcopal governance, the baptismal creed, let's say now the Apostles' Creed, and the scriptures in that order. So the scriptures come much towards the end. The Bible didn't drop out of the sky and say, okay, here's the guidebook for now how you do church. It becomes now the witness of the people who believed in the mighty works of Jesus Christ and began to put two and two together about the whole of their sacred literature and it's foretelling of this uh, as they looked at it through the lens that they looked at it through, okay? 
So Paul is speaking about this in a way that gives us some creedal idea about what it is uh, that they were saying in that community probably uh, in the late 50s or early 60s AD. So in the gospel today, we get Luke and his version, which is pretty close to the other versions. Uh, Luke's different in the order that the temptations come slightly, but everything else is pretty regular. But here's the thing. Jesus gets tempted around the three energy centers. Security and survival, affection and esteem, and power and control. Father Keating says, Jesus redeemed us from the consequence of our emotional programs for happiness by experiencing them himself. As a human being, he passed through the pre-rational stages of developing human consciousness, immersion in matter, the emergence of a body self, and the development of conformity consciousness, and over-identification with one's family, nation, ethnic group, and religion. He had to deal with the particular but limited values of each level of human development from infancy to the age of reason without ever ratifying with his will their illusory projects for happiness. Jesus appears in the desert as the representative of the human race he bears within himself the experience of the human predicament in its raw intensity. So Jesus went everywhere that we've gone and back. And so when we understand him as the template that we lay over our own spiritual life and development, that's what we mean. His absolute, his absolute humanity understood in this way. So that means all the pre-rational stuff that you and I had as we were born and we went through all of that is the same thing that Jesus went through as well. It wasn't just dropped here through some magical experience and now proceeds to be six inches off the ground for the whole of his earthly ministry and then goes back to God. He was a human being. That's why I've said to you before, if you'd come up to him in Galilee and asked him about NASA and the space program, he wouldn't have known what you were talking about. Not a clue. He was a human being. So how would it look if we were to make any spiritual progress uh, in this area? What, do you, what would it mean to say you're going to make spiritual progress with security and survival, affection and esteem, and power and control? And remember, I've said over and over again, we're not talking about uh, the big global issues always about how you're making a difference in some heroic way, allying yourself with causes and institutions that are going to shift things in the right direction, although I hope you are. But the ordinary and the commonplace ways in which we relate one to another in our families, in the workplace, in our friendships, with our hobbies, any of the things that uh, make us feel who, like who we are. Well, one of the ways that you might say that you have made some spiritual progress around these areas is that you have taken responsibility for your own emotional being and destiny. The great saints of God knew and believed that they were dependent upon no one for their salvation. 
except God. And that gave them such a sense of freedom and peace that they were able now to uh, give of self in a way that uh, was truly effective. And so if you're not hung up on security and survival, affection and esteem and power and control, all of us need these things. We need to handle this properly. You don't not have this. You have to learn how to rightly handle it so that you become an effective and mature human being. So perhaps that would be one way. Maybe another way would be that you would discover as you live your life that the fruits of the Spirit of God, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen you, are more present in your ordinary daily living and interaction. That you're a little kinder, you're a little gentler, you a you're able to have a little more self-regulation over instinctual drives. You are able in some ways to um, be, uh, ha have a, a, a peaceful uh, interior. You're more serene. And if you can notice these things about yourself, you might be able to say that you can make some spiritual progress, you know. The thing is that um, the great mystery in this, isn't it, is that you're, you'll be able to do that and see it, and then it seems like you've regressed. <laughs> you know, you take three steps forward and two steps back, and you don't figure it out. You know, but I think that that's the uh, that's what the spiritual life shows you in some in some ways. So this week, think about the three energy centers. This week, think about the template you can use to, to ask yourself if you're keeping Lent, which is to read the baptismal covenant in the prayer book. This could be a good time of year, if you don't have one, to get a book of common prayer. You know, just to sort of have it around. It's like, do we have a Bible here in you know, <laughs> Might be a good idea, you know. We sit in the office sometimes and say, is there a Bible? <laughs> You know, where's the prayer book? Uh, oh, there it is, you know. So sometimes we get wrapped up in things and, and uh, don't realize that we ought to just remember some of the basics, first things first. Um, do that and see what happens. Amen. Amen.